We continue our series on the book of Romans this morning by turning our attention to Romans chapter 12. And we'll just be looking at the first two verses of Romans chapter 12, Romans 12, 1 and 2. Romans 12, 1 through 2 has the word, therefore. And I've always remembered anytime you see therefore, it's there for a reason. And the reason it's therefore is there for a reason is because Paul has spent 11 chapters telling us about the glories of God and his salvation and his sovereignty of this marvelous grace and how he works in the hearts of men and women to bring them to salvation. And then it's in Romans chapter 12 that Paul turns his attention and says, therefore, live like this. In light of such grace, in light of such mercy, in light of the greatness of God, this is how you should live. It's, you often hear people say that in light of God's grace, that it should transform the way that you live and act and move and love and exist. Uh, it was the great Francis Schaeffer who wrote the book, How Should We Then Live?, and you can almost put the title of his book on top or over uh, Romans chapter 12, that in light of God's grace, in light of his sovereignty, this is how a Christian responds. This is how we respond to such mercy, to such love, to such greatness. What does the greatness and the grace of God demand? Romans chapter 12 is the essence of the Christian life. Amen. Yes. So we turn our attention to Romans chapter 12. Hear the word of God together. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. That is, by testing, you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God, it stands forever. Amen. Have you ever been the recipient of remarkable kindness and generosity? Have you ever been the recipient of kindness and generosity, the type of generosity and kindness in which the giver sacrificed everything and the recipient did nothing. Have you been the recipient of such grace and mercy and kindness in which the person giving you the gift did so much and you did nothing at all? How would you respond? How do you act? What do you say? What do you do? For 11 chapters, Paul has been explaining to the reader of such generosity and otherworldly generosity in a tremendous grace and mercy of God in which God does everything, even sacrifices his one and only son and gives us this amazing grace and says, you have done nothing, nothing at all to earn it, 
nothing at all to deserve it, nothing at all to acquire it. So then, how should you respond to such amazing grace, to such generosity and kindness? And that's what precisely we see here in Romans chapter 12. Paul calls on us to respond in such a way to such kindness and to such generosity. And if you have received this great grace and this great kindness and this great mercy from God, Paul calls us here in Romans chapter 12 and precisely here in the first two verses to respond in the only way that is befitting of a person that has received such generosity to respond. And he gives us three things here in Romans chapter 12 that we should respond. And he calls us to respond with one, total surrender, two, complete transformation, and then lastly, with a new motivation. So the first thing that we see here in Romans chapter 12 is Paul calls upon the Christian to total surrender. The second half of verse 1 says to present your bodies, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. This is your spiritual worship. What Paul is talking about here is that in light of such grace, in light of such mercy, he calls upon us as Christians, as followers of Christ, to a life of total surrender. It's what the Bible talks about. It's what the great hymn talks about. This idea of consecration, to offer yourselves, to offer yourselves as living sacrifices. But it's interesting here that Paul does not just say to offer your, yourselves spiritually. He intentionally uses the word to offer your bodies. What was significant about that? So you see, to the Greek and to the Roman, the idea of the physical self was insignificant. You see, for the Greeks, they wanted the entire goal of life was to get rid of the physical body and to attain spiritual salvation. What Paul says here is so significant. He says, no, God wants everything. He not only wants your spiritual life, but he wants your physical life as well. He not, doesn't want just your life in private, but he wants your life in public. Every part of your life, both physical and social, both private and public, is to be offered up to God. Both your spiritual life and your physical life totally surrender to God. This is the only response appropriate for someone that has received such grace and such mercy. God wants every part of our lives. But what does that look like to be a living sacrifice? What does it look like to totally surrender our lives to God? Well, the first thing that we have to remember is it requires us to renounce ownership. How do we renounce ownership? It means that we no longer can say our lives belong to our, ourselves. It means that no longer we can say things like, well, I believe in Jesus and I follow God, but I don't agree with everything that he says. It means that we can no longer say that I like this part of the truth and I don't like that part of the truth. You see, totally surrendering your lives to God means that we renounce ownership of our lives. It means we renounce ownership over our careers and our desires and our dreams and our passions and our finances and our resources. Everything belongs to God total surrender 
There is a God. There is a king. And I am not him. That is the message of the Christian. That is the motto of the Christian. Total surrender requires us to renounce ownership. It also means that we redirect the purpose of our lives. What does the shorter catechism say? A part of our great tradition. It says the chief end of man is what? Our pleasure and our happiness. No. It says the chief end of man is what? To glorify God. To enjoy him forever. You see, when we become a follower of Jesus Christ, it means that our purposes, our goals, our desires all have to be lined up for one thing and one thing only, the glory of God. It is the glory of God that becomes our chief concern and our chief desire. It guides every single thing we do, the glory of God. From our vocation to our recreation to the raising of our children, it is for one purpose and one purpose alone, the glory of God. Now this idea of sacrifice, this idea of living sacrifice, renouncing ownership of our lives, redirecting the purpose of our lives, it sounds like death, doesn't it? But what does Jesus say? Jesus himself says in Matthew chapter 10, if you want to find your life, what has to happen first? You have to lose it. You see, the whole idea of the gospel is paradoxical to life and to our culture. In order to find the life that you crave and desire, Jesus says, first, you have to lose your life. First, in order to gain all of the peace and happiness and security and satisfaction that your heart desires, you first have to put all of your dreams and desires on the altar of God in order to find your life. You see, our culture says, get off the altar and take hold of your life. Jesus says, no, you want a life? put yourself on the altar first and then you will live to be a living sacrifice first in order to find my life I must lose it it means death to myself and yes to Jesus Christ you see the whole goal of the Christian life is what more of yourself no the whole goal of the Christian life and being a living sacrifice is this more of Jesus and less of me more of Jesus and less of me my desires, my passions, my careers, my desires, my dreams, my hopes on the altar of God. Less of me and more of Jesus. Total surrender. The only response befitting of a person that has been the recipient of such grace and mercy. Point number two. Not only does it require total surrender, but it also requires complete transformation. In verse 2, what does it say? Do not be conformed to this world, but instead what? Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. You see, this is a life of complete transformation, that we are called to not be conformed into the image and the likeness of our world and of our culture that we no longer think and act and move as the world and the culture should have us think and act and move, but we see in our lives a transformation, albeit it is a slow transformation over time, but it is a transformation by the grace of God that we no longer act like the world acts, but we act and live and think like Jesus lives and acts and thinks. That is, that is the motto, that is the way of the Christian when the people of God were receiving the law, uh, they escaped from slavery in Egypt. What was God's chief concern? That they would no longer act 
like the culture of Egypt, that they would no longer act and live like the Egyptians acted and lived, but instead that they would live a life that looked like God. And so he presented them what? The law of God, which served as a mirror, that this is what holiness looks like. This is what the life of a believer looks like. This is what the life of God's children is to look like. And so the message to the Christian today is this, do not be conformed to the image and patterns of this world, that we are no longer, we are going to say this as a church and as people that follow Jesus Christ, that we are not going to fit and look like the world looks like, but we are going to model our lives like the image and likeness of Jesus Christ. You see, our world and our culture, do not kid yourself, do not fool yourself. The world has philosophers and missionaries all over it that are convincing you and your children and your grandchildren how to live and how to think. And we as a church need to be prepared to think and act like Jesus thinks and acts. That we would be transformed, how? Through the renewing of our mind that there are missionaries all over our culture that would love you to think that this is how a person is to find happiness and peace and prosperity and flourishing and success. And we need to arm ourselves with the mind of Christ to think like a Christian, to act like a Christian. This is what we mean when we talk about worldview here at a church. This is why we've embedded the idea of developing a biblical worldview in our mission statement here at Coral Ridge. Because we want you on Monday morning, we want our children as they enter into school, we want our students as they graduate high school and go off to a college campus to have a worldview, to have a grid of truth, true truth, absolute truth, a grid over their minds and then their hearts so that on day one when their truth and everything they've believed is confronted by their professor, they are able to not shrink back, but able to stand for the truth of Jesus Christ. That is the mission of the church, and that is the mission of the Christian. So I would ask you, what are you doing in your home practically with your children and your grandchildren, with your nieces and your nephew? What strategy are you implementing? Because I guarantee you there are people that are paid a lot of money developing a strategy now to grab the hearts and the minds of your children. So parents and grandparents, which strategy are you implementing in your home today to develop a biblical worldview so that your children, your grandchildren would be what? Transformed by the renewing of their mind. Hugh Hefner, the purveyor of the exploitation of women all over the world was interviewed with his mother who happened to be named Grace. And they asked his mother, are you proud of your son? And reluctantly she said, I think so, but I'd rather he'd be a missionary. And with that, Hugh Hefner looked at his mom and said, mom, I am a missionary. I have taken my message and my vision for what I hope to accomplish to the far corners of the world. Brothers and sisters, if you do not think there are missionaries in our culture that want to rob us and to fool us and to deceive us, you are kidding yourselves. 
We must, as the church, be the salt of the earth and the light of the world. Missionaries that are prepared and equipped to take God's truth, to stand in the public square, to stand in the midst of our dark culture and proclaiming the light of the gospel to the entire world hears. This is the mission and the message of the church. So what is your strategy? What is your strategy in your life and the strategy in your home to be transformed by the renewing of your mind? Our church, our people, our children, and our grandchildren, they need a map. They need a GPS for how to navigate through life, a mind for truth and a heart for God. That is our mission and our motto. So, total surrender, complete transformation. But I want to ask you the question in closing this morning. What compels a person to do this? You might be sitting here this morning and saying, this is all new to me, Pastor. What right do you have to say total surrender in the 21st century? What thinking person calls out to the congregation and says, surrender your life, complete transformation of your life, giving your mind and heart to God? Well, Paul gives us the answer. It's a new motivation. What is the motivation for the person to completely transform their life, to totally surrender their life, to give their heart and their mind to God on the altar of God. Paul gives us a new motivation, and it's his opening. The beginning of verse 1 says this, I appeal to you. Appeal means to make a public plea, a public declaration, appealing to you. On what right? On what what power? I appeal to you, therefore, brothers... By what? By the mercies of God. By the mercies of God. You see, brothers and sisters, what Paul is saying here, it is on the basis of the mercy of God in which I am appealing to you. And where is the mercy of God found? Notice that Paul says living sacrifice. He appeals to us by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Note that he doesn't say dead sacrifice. Why? Because that's where the mercy is found. You see, the reason Paul says living sacrifice is because the living sacrifice was preceded by a dead and bloodied sacrifice on the cross. You see, the only reason and the only motivation and the only way that you and I can surrender our lives on the altar of God is because God, through Jesus Christ, was offered up on the altar of God through the cross. And the reason that there is not a bloody sacrifice required by you and me is because the bloody sacrifice was offered 2,000 years ago in the person of Jesus Christ. Therefore, meaning blood was shed so that you don't have to shed your blood. You see, that is the motivation for us surrendering our lives to Jesus. There is only one motivation. There's only one thing that will move you and me to to renounce ourselves and to say yes to God. There's only one thing that will move you and me to total surrender, and that is the picture of Jesus Christ surrendering himself on the cross. And Paul says there's only one reasonable and rational response. In light of such mercy, in light of such surrender, in light of such sacrifice, how could you do anything but surrender your lives and your hearts to God this morning? Recently heard the story of a woman by the name of Ava. Ava is 94 years old and she was recalling the remarkable story of her life when Ava 
was giving birth to her third child, she lost her husband in the hospital giving birth to her third child, and at the same time, she lost her first husband. And so there she was, single, widow, three children living in Costa Rica. She eventually immigrates to the United States with three children and moves to Rochester, New York, and spends her most of her adult life in New York raising these three children. Well, fast forward 17 years later, in her small little church in Rochester, New York, she meets a man in her Sunday school class by the name of Mel. And at the end of the Sunday school class, Mel, Mel walks up to Ava and asks her on a date. And she says, no way, I've lived 17 years with no man. I am perfectly content raising my children by myself. And after all, when you get married to a man, you have to spend the rest of your life spoiling him. So Mel says, but you don't understand, you don't understand. Absolutely, I understand, Mel. I'll have to spend the rest of my life spoiling a man, and I don't want any parts of it. And so the following week, she comes up, Ava comes up to Mel and says, I was really nasty, and I just need to apologize. And Mel says, hey, no problem, let's go on a date. <laughs> and so that she obliges, and they go on their first date. And as they're sitting across from each other at the dinner table, Ava says, Mel, you kept saying last week that I, I just don't understand. I just don't understand. What? Then I cut you off. What exactly don't I understand? And Mel says, I don't want to meet a woman for her to spoil me. I want to meet a woman so that I can spoil her. Brothers and sisters, that's the gospel. Jesus came down as the perfect room to find a bride so that he could, the Bible says, lavish with love. How would you respond to such love and to such grace? There is only one response. There is only one reasonable and rational response to such lavish love of the Father that the Father has shown you so much love that Jesus would be willing to sacrifice his life. There's only one fitting response to sacrifice your life in return for him. Love so amazing, love so divine, it demands what? My soul demands my life, demands my all. Jesus on the cross put himself on the altar for you. And by his mercy, we get to put our lives on the altar for him. It's the only reasonable and rational thing to do. And so in closing this morning, I ask you, have you given your life to Jesus? Have you given your life to Jesus? Could there be any other response? Could there be any other rational and reasonable way for you to go out of here this morning than to say, Jesus, take my life and let it be? In light of such love, in light of such mercy, in light of such sacrifice, could there be any other way than to respond to the invitation of Jesus when he says this, Come unto me, all who weary and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. For if you confess with your mouth this morning that Jesus is Lord, and if you believe it in your heart that God raised him from the dead, here's the promise for you.
you will be saved. Jesus stands this morning and offers himself to you. Through the sacrifice of the cross, he can be yours. That you can have a father. That you can know of this love personally. That you can have a personal relationship with the God who created the heavens and the earth. This God has come down in the person of Jesus and offers himself to you this morning. And the only thing that he requires is this. That you no longer believe in yourself, but that you believe in him. That you say, I'm no longer going to be God of my life. Now I have a God, and he will become king and ruler of my life. That you no longer can go through life figuring out ways to save yourself, but that you have a savior, and he hung on the cross for you 2,000 years ago. And he offers himself to you this morning. By his mercy, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters. Give your life to Jesus. He gave his life for you. Amen.